From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. So we always have to look at the knee in conjunction with the whole kinetic chain, what's happening above it and what's happening below it. We've known for a very long time that cats don't do very well with essential oils. I'm, now look, granted I'm a big guy, you, you know, when I'm walking in the street, <laughs> I might look scary, you, you know, but there's no reason they're like, clutch your bag closer to you. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. What sort of crunchy noise do your knees make? Keeping the lights on when the planet's on fire and how your diffuser may be bad for your pet. That's all on the way over the next hour at the Radio Catch-Up Show that's live line free today because budget. Bet you knew that already, right? On this morning's 9 o'clock show, this week's host, Oliver Callan, was talking about the new war in the Middle East and he began by handing out some sound advice. A quick reminder, you don't need it, but if you didn't already know, Social media is certainly no way to follow uh, news of of that crisis in the Middle East, uh, the Hamas terror attack, the Israeli airstrikes on Gaza. And I think one of the worst aspects of the story is there's a bit of kind of pressure. We're kind of expected to only view uh, the issue through the kind of general prejudice of your main view over the years of Israelis versus Palestinians. But a life is a life is a life. Uh, I picked up one passage from the BBC News Online uh, which kind of neatly summed up quite simply and plainly what's happening. And it's, you can almost hear the fatigue in journalists who've been covering the story all the time while we're, we've maybe looked away only when it flares up. So it basically says, at the heart of the trouble is the intractable and unresolved century-long conflict between Arabs and Jews for control of the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the River Jordan. These rapidly escalating events prove once again that the conflict cannot simply be managed and is left to fester, violence and bloodshed are guaranteed. So there you go. In in other words, history haunts us and uh, repeats and continues. And the violence there has overshadowed happenings, as you'd imagine, right across the world, uh, even in the entertainment world and at the U2 show, in the Sphere in Las Vegas, which was all the celebratory news last week, wasn't it? All the reports of this amazing uh, 360 Sphere that the screen there and uh, Bono at the kind of the, the, the heading towards the end of their careers in many ways, you two. Uh, but Bono addressed the crowd in Las Vegas and changed the lyrics to Pride in the Name of Love, which is something that he does in, in response to uh, current events all the time. Uh, and it's important to remember, I think, that he's coming from a music point of view. So naturally he chose to focus on those uh, innocent teenagers who were murdered at the music festival on the Israeli side. Uh, 260 bodies recovered so far, many, many more injured uh, and people, as we know, taken hostage there. And it's also worth pointing out that this, the clip that you two released, that you're about to hear uh, Bono speaking, uh, they released it overnight, but it was recorded on Sunday night's show at The Sphere. So that would have been before the extent of the retaliatory airstrikes on, on Gaza that has killed hundreds of innocent people there too, were fully known. Here's Bono at The Sphere um, in Las Vegas uh, addressing the latest crisis. In the light of what's happened in Israel and Gaza, uh, a song about non-violence seems somewhat ridiculous, even laughable, but our prayers have always been for peace and, uh, and for non-violence, so... But our hearts and our anger, you know what that's pointed. So sing with us. And those those beautiful kids, that 
music festival. And he goes into pride in the name of love. It's a, it's a good clip, actually. It's up on YouTube's Instagram page, all their social media. And they mention both Israel and Gaza there to, to try to keep the balance because everyone has to find uh, find a way. But it, it, is, it is about uh, innocent lives and, uh, and the people who have no say in matters on either side uh, of those fences. And from tales out of the newest war to a nice story related to the older but still ongoing war from this morning's papers. Look at the education section of the Irish Times this morning and Michelle McBride brings us this um, this rather lovely story. It, it's about um, a Gael school in Connemara. It's called School Culmon. And uh, when their pupil numbers, their local pupil numbers, fell to nine, uh, the island's uh, school... The school uh, the, 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 in, in Muginish in Connemara, the future of the school was at total risk. And so the arrival of Ukrainian refugees have saved the school, quite literally doubling the number of pupils. It was in danger of becoming a single teacher school and perhaps worse down the road. So Principal Roisin Nikulon uh, this, knew that there were Ukrainians in the area and she offered them places in the school. And obviously there was concerns, well, it's an all Irish school. So she preempted the, this additional challenge uh, the, the Irish language might present to incoming students and she coordinated, set up a summer camp to help these uh, these young Ukrainians. So they ran three days a week for six weeks and uh, offered opportunities for the local students to meet their new classmates. This is over the summer before the uh, back-to-school formalities. Uh, so they totally merged uh, the, the young Ukrainians in the Irish language. There was a qualified teacher here, uh, Kuntor Changa, as well, which is an assistant in, in the language. And the camp used the Ashtra framework, which is from the, the kind of junior infants curriculum to teach uh, these new pupils Irish through the medium of play. Uh, so it made a huge difference for, for the start of the school in September. Everyone's excited because when you think about it, they're young kids. They've only just learned, as all children do, uh, their, their native tongue. So they can easily soak up a new language. Fairly easily, I would say. But obviously they went for the additional work. So it's a really good story. Uh, uh, in fairness, Principal Roisin the Hulan. There's a picture of there. She's a young woman. Because you always think of principals, don't you? It's kind of, maybe you go straight back to school and everyone feels ancient uh, when you're a little kid. But it, it's a very nice story there. This is in the Irish Times this morning and very interesting figures there which are going to show, which are kind of point to the future in Ireland and the effect this is going to have on all of us. 17,500 is the total number of Ukrainian pupils in Irish schools right now. Mostly very young because uh, 10,500 of those are in primary schools and the rest in secondary level schools. And of the Ukrainian children aged 5 to 18 attending school, 91% is the rate. That is extraordinary given what they're, they're carrying with them in, in, their, in their little minds and in their hearts and so on. Another uplifting story, after a fashion. I mean, it's not uplifting if you're Chuck Feeney. Involves the recent demise at 92 of the Irish-American billionaire philanthropist uh, Chuck Feeney. The death of Chuck Feeney and the huge tributes being paid uh, to this prolific philanthropist. Uh, he was Irish-American. His roots there came in Fermanagh. And I think it's, a, it's an amazing story because he was only 53 when he decided to give it all away. The billions he had made as a duty-free entrepreneur. And um, the fact that he decided, look, this money's not going to bring me joy. It's not going to bring me happiness. Uh, I'll just, just give it away. And it was in 2020 he signed a document. He, he had a tiny little uh, celebration looking at this art back in the it's in the Irish Times Conor O'Cleary he wrote a book about Chuck Feeney and is kind of giving that overview of his life and in 2020 when the rest of us were cowering in lockdowns he goes to a little ceremony to close the charity because the 8 billion dollars that he accumulated was spent and he was living 
in a in a tiny apartment with himself and his wife Helga living on a on a pension and uh, he signed the papers that closed the foundation and um, there was just a handful of people there Bill Gates sent a video message saying that he was a hero and and, and his chief inspiration and in the philanthropy Bill Gates goes around the world like Chuck Feeney did uh, encouraging rich people to just to give it away and uh, he went back to his apartment he had a grilled cheese sandwich to celebrate which was the, the typically modest lunch for this uh, guy who made fortune selling sandwiches out of Chuck <laughs> uh, duty free shops and so on so his message for the rich was you will get a lot more satisfaction giving it away when you were alive than when you were dead try it and you like it that's what his message is um, to, to the wealthy out there. There are not many of you listening, but you'll be very happy giving it away. Uh, not just for tax-efficient purposes. He gave it all away and uh, he died, by all accounts, uh, a very cheerful and satisfied man at the age of 92. And obviously huge donor to causes here, not least in education. And uh, he gave huge amounts of money, I think 25 million dollars to Queen's University in Belfast but also to a University of Limerick and there's lots of tributes from various academics around the country here. Dr Neve McGowan said it would be hard to find someone in Ireland whose life hasn't been improved in some way by the extraordinary generosity and goodness of Chuck Feeney. She's an associate professor at the uh, University of Limerick. Brian McRae who's a former president of DCU said very sad to learn of the passing of Chuck Feeney a man whose generosity transformed higher education and several other sectors in Ireland through the Atlantic Philanthropies, which was his charity. In 2012, all of the universities on the island of Ireland jointly conferred an honorary doctorate on Chuck Feeney. Very interesting. And the professor at UCD School of Politics, David Farrell, said he's very sad to hear that Chuck had passed away. His contributions were immense. Uh, one, will, one that will always be remembered in the, democratic, is, in the democratic innovations community is the generous funding of his organisation provided that launched Ireland as the trailblazer in deliberative democracy, um, uh, including the Citizens' Assembly. It's kind of our, our Greek, our version of Greek direct democracy that we still have there. And there are other stories all around the place. Because um, he, he initially did all of his donating anonymously until the 90s, from the mid-80s through to the 90s. But his, his, um, his donation was so huge that they couldn't really be couldn't be no longer ignored or pretend that it was it was not him that was doing it and uh, there's stories about him seeing a young girl smiling for the first time after an operation for a cleft palate watching a surgeon restore someone's sight and discussing plans with scientists for a new hospital or just chatting to children in a library that he his money had just built and uh, although they didn't know it he, he wouldn't allow his name on the library uh, either so there there you go a fascinating a fascinating man fascinating is right R.I.P. Chuck Feeney. And that's some of the stories that caught Oliver Callan's eye on this morning's nine o'clock show. How are your knees? Are they achy? Creaky? Or perhaps they're poppy? Do they crunch? On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Jenny Brannigan, chartered physiotherapist at Total Physio, talked about knee problems, starting with knee noise. Knee noise is certainly very common, but we're not worried about knee noise if there's no accompanying pain and no accompanying lack of function. So lots of different people have little grindings, clickings. As long as there's no pain or it doesn't affect your day-to-day movement, we're not particularly worried about mm. that. Well, it can be quite alarming, though, when you hear it. The, it the doesn't sound and very crunching. nice. And of course, some people click more than others. So you might go up the stairs and someone beside you might say, 
oh my God, was that your knee? But again, the key thing is how are you functioning? How does the knee joint move? Are your muscles around it strong enough? And can you do everything you want to do? So that's what we'd be most concerned about rather than the actual noise. Well, we come to the injuries in just a moment, but what causes the noise? So it's a thing called crepitus. That's the official term for it. And actually, they've investigated this an awful lot and they've determined that really all it means is that it's maybe slightly less smooth inside your knee than maybe somebody who doesn't click quite so much. So again, everybody likes to think that their knee is lovely and healthy and for the most part it is, but it's that lubricating fluid that moves around the knee and that's the most important thing as your knee moves and it moves well and even if it grinds a little bit, then we're not worried. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if you have clicky knees without pain, is it an indicator that you might need a knee replacement down the line? No, absolutely not. If you're worried about any clicking or moving in your knee, you can certainly get a check for reassurance and peace of mind, but what I would look at is the need doesn't exist in isolation. So if you're worried about any movement, uh, sorry, any clicking, I should say, in the knee, you could look at what's going on above in your hip, what's going on down below in the foot and ankle. And if you're not quite as strong or functioning as well as you could be in those areas, changes there might see a little bit of an effect in the knee noise that you're hearing. Okay, well, let's move to the injuries now because knee injuries, they count for a good proportion of of general sports injuries. Yeah, so about 40%. And in fact, if you depending on who you read, it can be sometimes reported up to 60%. Of course, anterior cruciate ligaments get all of the press because they're so dramatic and they take so long for people to recover from. And of course, we tend to see famous sports stars who end up succumbing to that injury. But yeah, about 40% of knee injuries are sports injuries. And that can be ligament, that can be meniscus, which is cartilage, that can be a joint strain itself, that can be kneecap, so patellofemoral joint. joint. So there's lots of different areas in the knee that can get injured. Mm. Do you have um, experience of people coming to you and saying, my knee hurts occasionally and then it, then it stops? goes yes. away, comes back. So that tends to be a more kind of a niggly overuse. It takes a bit of time to develop into the actual injury. And because it settles down within two or three days, the person doesn't feel like there's anything going on. So, for example, if you play the odd game of tennis and then your knee swells a little, it's a little bit sore for two or three days after, but then you're not going to play for another month. You wouldn't necessarily associate that with having a problem. But as you play more regularly and as you discover that that recovery period is taking longer and longer after each game, that's where you really need to be taking account of that. So anything that causes pain longer than just into the next day or even the second day after that, if it's longer than that, you need to be thinking, right, what's going on there? If you have swelling after an activity, again, you need to be thinking, what's happening here? Why am I getting this swelling? And they're the little niggly things. They just don't cause enough distress to make people aware of them. But over time, that that accumulation, that cumulative factor is the problem where it it becomes an injury and then you get to Mm -hmm. the point where you can't shake it. be willing to bet now loads of people ignore absolutely those symptoms if they go away that's exactly it because once it goes away you think oh that knee problem has settled but as soon as you exert yourself outside that comfort zone of movement it may return and again then you need to be thinking this is a bit of a pattern here what am I going to do about that okay let's take uh, some questions coming in I've had knee pain after long drives anything over three hours that is a long drive I'm really stiff afterwards the pain kicks in then do I need to worry or is it just old age I don't know how old that person is um, but obviously it's a concern for them Generally, we tend to not write anything off as just being old age. There's always something that can be done. So the first thing you think about is a long drive. So when you're in that position for a long period of time, there's no weight going through your knee in that 
particular time. So you have to think, well, what else could be going on there? So the most likely reason for that is restriction or lack of flexibility through those quad muscles, which are the muscles on the front of your thigh. So there's four muscles in that group. One of them crosses your hip and your knee joint, and that can tend to get a little bit tight. People often see this in the cinema as well. Their knee's a bit sore after two hours of watching a movie. But again, there's no weight going through the knee. So it's a muscle um, inflexibility problem. So you generally look at trying to improve the flexibility of that muscle. One thing just to watch, though, in long drives, you're also sitting down. So that could actually be a back issue that's masquerading with knee pain. You might have a little bit of referred pain into your knee when actually it's coming from your back. So that's, I would also check the back. Should you ever be driving for three hours without taking a break? That's a very good point, Claire. Ideally, yes, you should be trying to take more frequent breaks. So every 20 to 30 minutes, get out of the car, walk around it, take a few stretches, you know, get a cup of coffee and get back in. Absolutely. And particularly if you notice that after that long drive you're stiff you need to be taking steps to reduce that. Mm -hmm. Another one why does my knee hurt when I walk up steps and it doesn't hurt at any other time so what do you think might be going on there? So you actually have two joints in your knee. There's the joint between your thigh bone and your shin bone, but you also have the joint between your kneecap and it sits onto that thigh bone, your femur. So your patellofemoral joint. So when you go up those steps, there's a lot of pressure that goes through that patellofemoral joint. The kneecap has to move nice and easily in that groove and you need to have the strength in the front of your thigh muscles, your quad muscles. So if you've pain going up the steps, I would certainly get that checked out. That kneecap joint might need a little bit of strengthening in the muscles around it. What does getting it checked out mean? It means going to a physio, getting your knee your knee joint assessed as regards the movement, how strong the muscles are around it. But you also need to think about that knee as part of the whole leg. So the hip above, what's that doing? Is it moving well? Have you good strength in your buttock muscles? And then the foot and the ankle below it. Have you had, you know, a repeated ankle sprain problem? And that might be changing how you're moving. So your gait mightn't be as good as normal because you're offloading for your ankle, but then the knee is taking the brunt of that. Mm-hmm. So we always have to look at the knee in conjunction with the whole kinetic chain, what's happening above it and what's happening below it. The whole kinetic chain is my new favourite phrase. That's Jenny Brannigan, Chartered Physiotherapist at Total Physio, talking knees and everything connected to them with Claire Byrne this morning. Black and Irish, Legends, Trailblazers and Everyday Heroes is the title of a new book from the people behind the Black and Irish podcast, Leon Diop and Brianna Fitzsimons. It's a collection of 25 stories of black and Irish people from throughout history up to the present day, written for young adults. And Leon and Brianna joined Ray Darcy this afternoon. So profiles of people who are black and Irish. How many people in total in the book, Brianna? Oh, there's 25 chapters right, and each okay. chapter has at least one person in addition to um, so in the, the 30s in the 30s anyway oh no definitely That's probably like, more, more like in the 50s, 50s. Right. Yeah, yeah like we wanted to include an excerpt in each uh, chapter of someone who was in a similar kind of field so yeah there's about I'd say about 55 yeah. so you have yeah. the people that people would know and yeah. then the yeah. everyday heroes yes uh, yeah, like everyone in that is is an everyday yeah, hero. Yeah. Um, it's more so just people who are doing similar types of work and different things like that. But we also wanted to include uh, nuggets of information that might mm-hmm. give a bit more context to, to the time that people were living in or um, to an aspect of, of their life that people might not be aware of. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was part of it. So this all started in 2020, I suppose, for you. Yeah. Um, you set up Black and Irish. Was it a... Uh, an Instagram page or what was it? Yeah, so I set up as an Instagram page first. Um, I remember seeing the death of George Floyd on my screen and just really being upset by it and really frustrated and wanting to do something. And 
I think initially what I wanted to do was write a letter to George Floyd's parents and you, you know tell them that like look I know this is a terrible thing that's happened but I, I hope that some good will come of it because people around the world were really starting to take notice of anti-black racism and how it was presenting itself but it was very focused on the US and how it presents itself in the US so what I wanted to do then was create something that had a bit of an Irish context to it so started an Instagram account with, with two friends and just wanted to document the, the everyday lived experiences of black and mixed race people all over uh, the island and with that came a, a, a ton of po- positive response I, I, I would say a little bit of negative but mostly positive positive. Um, and we had you, you know people from all over the country sharing the page and saying wow like I didn't know that this this was actually needed um, and I think the Instagram page was something that moved the needle on okay do we have racism in Ireland and does racism exist too okay we know racism exists in Ireland and how are we going to deal with it so hmm. I think that's that's something that the Instagram account was able to do. And what you said there at the outset is hugely important because uh, the way racism manifests itself in America, yeah. the way it manifests in the UK is different to here. We're mm-hmm. at a different stage, aren't we? Absolutely. In our no, evolution we're, we're as a society. Very different stages. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the history of the US and the UK and, the, you know, the US's history with uh, slavery, um, you know, Reconstruction, Civil Rights Movement, uh, Jim Crow era, um, and, and then you look at the UK with colonialisation and with Windrush generation, with kind of systemic issues that they have over there. We're at, we are at a very different, you know, phase. Like, you know, mass immigration into Ireland is is only, um, you know, happening since the, the late 90s, I'm mm-hmm. going to say. And we, we don't have the same historical context that would lead to a number of at all. issues. At so, all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You, you know. And the other thing we don't have for a black and Irish community are role models as such we do in this book but if you look at the the demographics yeah. the, like there are very few black and Irish people over the age of 60 mm. which which points yeah. to the fact that we were a very white country up until the last 20 years or so yeah absolutely yeah. like the, uh, we, we have some role models to look at like the likes of Jude Hughes and Christine Buckley and uh, Paul McGrath and mm. Phil Ennett and stuff like that. But, um, the, but who do they have? Yeah, who do they have? You know, well, like there, there, there has been you know documents of black people living in Ireland for you know hundreds of years. Like when you go back to the likes of Raquel Baptiste, mm. um, it's Black History Month, so we might as well Ooh. join a little bit of history. <laughs> and, <laughs> and celebrating our sisters. So. Oh, absolutely, yeah, 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 celebrating our sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Raquel Baptiste was someone who lived in in Ireland in. The, between 1725 and 1750, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, a world-renowned singer. Um, she travelled up and down Ireland and across to the UK to, to sing. Um, you know, she was she was applauded wherever mm-hmm. she went, you know. So that's someone from, that's a black Irish person from history. Okay. Um, and she's mentioned in the introduction of the book. And um, notable because there was there was only one of her, if you know what I mean. <laughs> probably, yeah. there, wasn't a, there wasn't a community. No, of, no, yeah, no. There weren't yeah. communities of black people. Yeah. And that's only happened in the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 it has. Uh, you're in education, Brianna. I am, I am. Uh, mm-hmm. just, you're from Tala, Leon. We'll just get both your, 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 <laughs> your, your personal histories. Uh, you came from America. I did. So, so just give us a sort of a potted history of your, your own life. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a city called Yonkers, New York, on the doorstep of New York City, um, in a really diverse town, uh, city, I should say. And I have been a teacher since 2010, um, taught in New York, taught in California, moved here with my Irish, also from Tala, husband. Um, no relation. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> went to the same school, though. They did. They went to the same but yeah, we moved back um, in 2017 and I've been teaching ever since. I'm okay. actually taking this year off um, to do this 
And Five how did you in. meet Leon? Yeah, I joined Black and Irish. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, actually, the first thing that we did actually was get, I actually had the, um, I had written into the page to see if someone could do a talk for my TYs. It was during COVID. It was during one of the school shutdowns. And Leon did a talk. I don't know if you remember, a virtual talk with my yeah, TY. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was one of many. I'm sure you did. And then they put a call out. It was maybe a month or so later for an education coordinator. And I just filled out the form and then the rest is history so so, so yeah. you talk about racism in schools I do, I do yes right. yeah yeah so so you do that as well you've given yeah. numerous talks what mm. do you say to TYers when you're invited mm. to talk oh just you, you know <laughs> that the black black and Irish identity is something that's growing and that's exciting and something to be proud of mm. um you know for myself what I would have loved to have heard when I was in that kind of age demographic w- w- would be that you can be um, 100% of everything that you are I always thought that I needed to kind of you can be 100% in. of everything you are yeah yeah yeah, yeah because yeah. Um, you, you know because I'm half Irish half Senegalese I um, always told myself that I, I have to find somewhere to, to fit in and mm. if I fit in with one side I can't fit in with the other and that it like it's 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 nearly impossible for me to do so but I am 100% of everything that I am. I can celebrate my Irish heritage and So history. it's literally not black or black and white. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because, it, because it, you know, if you're filling in yeah. a form, you have to tick a box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why I, oh, I hate those forms, right? <laughs> yeah. I always have to tick other and write in because I'm also a big mix of things. Yeah, um, yeah. And I love that you say that, Leon. About, and what questions yeah. do they ask you, Leon? Mm. What, 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 oh, in, the in students. terms of students? Yeah, yeah just like uh, uh, one of the main questions that I've been getting is do we do any internship programs, yeah. which is what I'm delighted about, you know, because they're they're excited about the organisation. They see it as something that's you, you know bringing um, you know positivity to to their skill. I'm not going in and talking about doom and gloom of 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 racism. Like they ask me sometimes, how do I deal with racism and 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 what are some of the measures that you can take to, to stop racism from from happening? Um, you, you know, and while you can't necessarily always prevent racism from happening like we can educate as many people as we can about racism and how it can present itself because a lot of people I think in Ireland when they engage in racist behaviour they might not even be aware that they're doing Mm -hmm. it you know it's coming from a place of unconscious bias so how um, does that look then if it's coming from a place of unconscious bias yeah so like like, so it might be like you, you know I'm now look granted I'm a big guy you, you know, when I'm walking down the street, <laughs> I might look scary, you, you know, but there's no reason they like cl- clutch your bag closer to you. Um, right. You, so you, that's... you know, if I walk past you or if I walk into a shop, like I have no interest in robbing anything. And would you notice, would you notice that? Like, you know, would you notice that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, when I was younger, I used to walk into a shop and I'd, I'd get like a detailed security guard wherever mm-hmm. I went. Mm-hmm. You, you know, they'd follow me around the shop and it was blatant. Like, and yeah. I'd be looking at this person like, you know, I used to say that I was so important that I'd walk into a shop and I'd get my own <laughs> security guard, you, you know, that they'd take care of me. But it was because they thought, yeah, you know, it's a young, it's a young black person. They might rob the shop. Mm. You, you, you know, so, um, you know, that also from Talis. So there was a kind of mm. there was kind of multi dimensions to yes. it. Mm. Intersectional yeah. racism, yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, mm. and so, yeah, so, so your mum, white Irish. Yes. Uh, your dad left when you were six. So yeah, they they divorced when I was six, six yes. and then he moved to France when I was twelve. Right. Yeah, and then subsequently passed away when I was sixteen. So. I, I was disconnected from my African heritage from from a young enough age. So, so how did you see the world? That, that's a big question. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, 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 a, I don't think it'd be therapist even here to these kind of answers. <laughs> um, you know, so uh, I saw the world as something that I needed to adjust myself to, and that I, I needed to uh, fit myself into rather than being my full self. Right. Um, it, I, I. I 
Do we all have or, to do a bit of that? Do we, do we all probably have. It's I think part of the human condition, really. A, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I, I was yeah. only having a conversation with someone on this the other day about, like, you know, hiding our vulnerabilities and stuff like that yes. because our brain sees them as weaknesses and yeah. we don't want to show weaknesses. Our brain is, you know, wired for us to survive and protect us, so it's not going to express ourselves fully and that can ultimately lead to us feeling, you know, low or sad because we're not expressing ourselves fully or, you know, anxious or frustrated because mm. of the... You, you, you know, um, pressures that we are, are put on us by the world, um, you, you know. So yeah, that 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 is an issue. But it's important that you're able to feel your full self and that you're able to express yourself fully. And people might give you crap about, it. like, look, I'm not gonna lie to you, I get crap all the time. You, you, you know, no matter what, <laughs> no matter what I do, no matter where I go, someone is gonna send me a message being like, I don't like what you're doing, or mm. I don't like the fact that you're calling yourself black and Irish, or mm. whatever it is. What do they not like about that? What, oh, what 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 you know, why do they not like you calling yourself I, Irish? to be that's that's on them you know like that yeah. I don't think that's for me to answer I, like I wish um uh, no like look a lot of them are are, are bots or are angry trolls or, yeah. or whatever um and you know at this point I'm I'm well able to deal with them and for me it's gotten to a point where I pity these people now because they're sitting at home and they're angry about something that mm. like it's not a big deal when you think about it um and they're they're you know they're so angry that they they feel like they need to put really kind of vitriolic things into a text message, and that says more about them than of course it, it does. You, you yeah, know yeah. It, does, it, it does about me. That's Leon Diop, co-author with Brianna Fitzsimons of Black and Irish Legends, Trailblazers, and Everyday Heroes, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. The book is published by Little Island. The world, as you may have heard, is on fire. So how do we keep the lights on without fanning the flames? On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, the possibility of Ireland investing in small modular nuclear reactors was discussed by Sarah Cullen, energy systems engineer and co-founder of 18 for Zero, and Dr Paul Dean, senior lecturer in clean energy at University College Cork. And Paul started by describing what a small modular nuclear reactor is. Nuclear is one of those things, isn't it, that always tends to grab the public's, public's attention. And as you said correctly at the outset, you know, if you get this right, it can make a huge impact in terms of avoiding dangerous climate change. But of course, if you get it wrong, it can present a lot of dangers. Now, the thing that's very interesting about small modular nuclear reactors, you know, many of us will be familiar with, uh, with, with, with traditional nuclear reactors. Anybody who has been uh, to France over the summer on the holidays will probably have driven past a very large nuclear power station. Or if you've been over to the UK, there's a very large nuclear installations there, such as Hinkley. Now, they're very big, they're very large, they're very complex. The idea of small modular nuclear reactors is kind of like the IKEA concept. The idea there is that you take this technology, you you build it in central locations, you standardize it, uh, and the idea here is that you're, you're able to replicate it, you're able to make it more efficient, you're able to get the cost down, but you don't build it at the location where you want it. In many ways, it's kind of similar as well to the jumbo jets uh, uh, that, 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 that kicked off in the 1960s when people wanted airplanes they didn't build them in the locations where the airports were they built them in a small small number of centralized locations around the world this allows you to get things standardized to get things hopefully get the cost down and the idea then if countries wanted to purchase this technology you would simply ship in the technology into a country you drop it in and that's the great appeal I suppose and it and the 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 conceptual uh, attractiveness of this type of design but it is still an unproven technology that's the key point here but if you get it right it can do big benefits for, for, for right across the so world. So it's a, it's a concept at the moment. It's an ambition, is it? 
Yeah, that's correct, yeah. So it's not commercially available at the moment. So this is very important, I suppose, when we're having this debate. You know, new, these small modular nuclear reactors, they're not something for the next 10 or 15 months. It's probably something more likely if we get it right. And look, there's a lot of ifs around this question. If we get it right, it's something really for the next 10 or 15 years. Mm. But what we're asking is, should we be in on the on the ground level here, Sarah? And on that point, why should we be in on the ground level? Uh, it's not my position that we should be in on the ground level of developing them. Um, I think actually just one small um, bit add, there is one prototype um, small modular plant running in China and they're building their first um, commercial one, which will be um, exporting electricity in 2026. So it's a little bit further ahead and it's not really just conceptual as well because a lot of small modular reactors are various types of plants and some of them are just shrunk it like the ones that Paul described kind of shrunken down versions of existing plants. So for some designs all of the components are already proven there's already supply chains um, in place there and design like design certificates have been granted for one of these in the US and I think there's ones going through the process in Canada and the UK. So it's a little bit further along than just a concept. Um, They do offer a lot of benefits as well. So having a smaller size means that, you know, you can slot them into grids that previously were too small to have nuclear power plants. And it makes it a more interesting option for Ireland than conventional power plants has been in the past. So I think it's definitely worth considering. And if we consider it now, then maybe, you know, as Paul says, years from now, if we decide that we want it, um, we'll have already done a lot of the groundwork. We'll have already kind of chipped away at the, you know, 10, 15 years um, build time by, or yeah, development time by um, having done some work now. So if we did our assessment now to make our decisions. And what do you say, uh, or how do you say we could be involved here? Are you talking about us just buying these things in from other countries? Yeah, so that's the idea with them. Like it is, like Paul described, um, we would be able to potentially either build a new purpose-built site for one of these, or for one or several of the reactors. The idea behind them is that they're module or modular. But um, also, there's a lot of concepts around the world to retrofit coal plants with these small modular plants because the size of the nu- these nuclear reactors um, are similar to a lot of the size of a lot of coal burners um, in coal power plants and Ireland has a big coal power plant um, so it's kind of easy to visualise how that might fit in with our infrastructure. Paul, do you see that working? Yeah, again, if we get the technology right, but I think it's it, there's a couple of things we just need to manage our expectations around here. It, the UK are very different in terms of their nuclear journey to Ireland. Uh, this is a reasonable bet, I think, for the UK to take uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, they already have a very large nuclear industry uh, established in the UK with a number of nuclear power plants operating. They have a very large workforce as well in the UK, Claire, when it comes to nuclear energy, about 70,000 people. And importantly as well, they also have a lot of companies who make equipment and make these existing devices already for the nuclear industry, such as Rolls-Royce. So I think from the UK perspective, it makes a lot of sense. I think us here in Ireland, unfortunately, we don't have any of those three criteria. And I think a better move for Ireland would be to kind of take a a, a watching brief on this technology. If it works in a number of years' time, if the permitting and licensing, which is a huge barrier to any kind of these very large infrastructure projects, if we can get that right, then it could become an option. But I think the promise of a future technology is not an excuse to do nothing 
nothing here at the moment. We are a very polluting country, unfortunately, in Ireland, and we do need to progress our journey in renewables and and and, and cleaning up our electricity system with, with elements there. Okay, but Sarah, you say that having that sit and wait approach will just leave us on the back foot here. Well, actually, I agree with um, what Paul's saying. We don't have enough time to kind of sit around and wait for new technologies. We need to kind of obviously assess everything. You know, the government has made some really good um, decisions in the last few years to establish um, various groups to look into hydrogen development, even geothermal, which Ireland isn't particularly well placed geographically for, but it's worth looking into because it is a low carbon technology. And we should take that same approach with nuclear power. And um, if it turns out we want it in the future, we don't want to be hindered by, you know, one or two years of pre-feasibility studies that we could do now for no risk and very low cost. And uh, we'd get the support from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which we're already a member of. We're very well set up to just do a pre-feasibility study now, and that will help us if in the future we decide we want it. But Paul's absolutely right. We need to be building as much clean infrastructure as we can. Our next year, Ireland's going to be building nine new gas-powered plants. So clearly, we still have a lot of issues <laughs> with developing clean energy um, infrastructure, so we can't be ruling anything out at mm-hmm. this point. But Sarah, but Sarah you, that hinders that. So, sorry, Sarah, to, to interrupt you, but you know, you know this. The moment you mention nuclear power in this country, there is fear and there is opposition. Now, is that based on evidence or emotion? Um, well, I think it's based on history. Um, and it's based on a lot of people's experiences. You know, the anti-nuclear movement in Ireland coming from the 70s and the 80s, a lot of that was meshed in with fear about nuclear war and with and at a time when there wasn't really um, proper environmental procedures in place um, or assessments in place the way that there are now. There wasn't the same stringent regulation. So I think that, you know, a lot of the original reasons why certain people in Ireland were opposed to nuclear power um, have changed and it's maybe it still isn't for us. That might well be the case, but we will only know that and if there are public fears, we can only address those fears by having good information and reliable reports and that needs to come from the government but there's two barriers in the way of that at the moment. The housing committee, the Eroctus Housing Committee last week just um, passed a new um, ban on nuclear power in the new planning bill that was signed off by cabinet. So we have these political barriers, much more than societal. And if we if we just, if we think we might have societal barriers, now is the time to address them. Now is the time to do studies and see. Look, should we rule this out, or could we maybe ten years from now look into this, or whenever we might want it? Fascinating and scary in equal measure. That's energy systems engineer and co-founder of 18 for Zero, Sarah Cullen, who, along with Dr Paul Dean, senior lecturer in clean energy at UCC, was discussing with Claire Byrne the hypothetical possibility of Ireland deploying some small modular nuclear reactors to meet our net zero goals. Today, Tuesday, is International Mental Health Awareness Day. It's also Irish Charity Aware's Mental Health Week. And this morning, Oliver Callan was joined in studio by Aware board member Adrian Yates and Aware support line volunteer Keelan Mickelson. Oliver asked Adrian to take us through his own mental health story, which began in the 1990s. When I was in my um, mid-20s, I actually uh, went to live and work in Holland. 
and uh, we had our first uh, kid when we were over there. And leading up to that, I just felt very much not myself. Right. Couldn't put my finger on it, didn't really understand what it was because so many things were going so well. We were living in Amsterdam, we were having a great time, loads of friends and we were about to have a, have a family. So it just didn't add up. Um, I was very conscious also that I was working in, um, in the European headquarters of a, uh, an international car company and yeah. uh, the atmosphere in there was very much uh, male dominated and it was all about your classic stereotypical man. You know, I should be big, I should be strong, I should be smart, I should be able to get through things. Uh, so not really understanding and I, I could see the impact it was having on my performance. I saw at first that I wasn't, things that I would normally find easy, I was finding more and more difficult. I had a desk on my phone and it was my biggest fear. Every time that phone rang, I, you know, I practically had a panic attack because it was, I didn't know what they were going to ask me. And then I felt I wouldn't be able to answer. And, you know, basically I'd be found out. And that was the big fear. I'm going to be found out. And once I'm found out, I'm going to get fired. And if I get fired, then I won't be able to afford to live where I'm living. Um, maybe my family will break up. You know, I just went through a total catastrophizing. There's a whole rope of fear mm, there, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and thankfully, I had a very, very good friend who recognised those signs in me. He was Irish as well. Uh, he worked on a different floor, but we used to meet up and he, he recognised that, uh, that I wasn't myself. And it was him who said to me, you know, I think you, you need to see a doctor, you need to get help. And I'm going, no, 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 I have to sort this out kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I tried to brave through it, you know what I mean? Use this whole, you know, the big male thing, I'll just pull hard or kick twice as hard, all this sort of stuff, but it didn't work. And when I eventually did get uh, medical intervention, I was diagnosed with uh, depression at that stage. That was a, a friend ahead of uh, their time. Absolutely. Mm. But I think the secret is, and the reason I like telling that story is, it's when you know and you can see uh, what somebody else is, because uh, a lot of people think that what happens in depression is all in your head, which most of it is, but it also presents in your body. Hmm. Uh, it also presents in your behavior and your reactions. So when you're in tune with what that might look like, then you can be able to reach out and uh, offer some support to somebody. And I think that's really what AWARE is trying to do. The whole thrust behind AWARE is about education, understanding and support. And I think it's great to be here this morning to be able to talk about this on the yeah. National Airways and because thanks everybody, for, everybody for, can do that. Yeah. But my friend did and that's why I ended up on the board, I think. Uh, and is, I think what's important as well is that although your diagnosis comes in 1994, when you come to understand it, I presume you're kind of realising, OK, it just doesn't, it, it didn't just start there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when I was growing up, uh, I think I was described as being painfully shy. Uh, yes. So if anyone saw me here today, they'd be wondering, is the same person? But actually, I think, again, and you, you do your own kind of uh, um, analysis as well, but I think I had strong uh, traits of anxiety at that age, uh, that fearfulness, you know, want to have strong people around me and not really being that confident in myself. So I'm sure uh, when I think back into my school years and when I think back into my early working career, I definitely had issues with uh, chronic anxiety and that can lead to depression. I mean, often you will get, you know, a co-diagnosis uh, of anxiety and depression. Uh, so it's not unusual for that to happen. But I think for me, one of the other key messages I, I want to get across to listeners out there is the earlier that's spotted and the sooner you get help, then recovery is very, very, very possible. 
uh, you know, I live a very normal, fruitful, uh, you know, I've done lots and lots of things in my life uh, that, you know, had I not got the help and support that I did, you know, I'd probably be languishing somewhere, you know, on welfare or something like that, you know, not really making contributions to society. So it, it can be just a little a little bump on the road. It can be a very, very big bump on the road. Mm-hmm. But there's always hope for recovery. And the really important thing is to get the help that you need. And there's loads of it out there. Um, you know, just pop onto aware.ie, as you mentioned there about the, the focus this week. Because the other thing about depression is it can happen at any life stage. Yes. So whether you're younger, whether you're, mid, you know, young adult, whether you're, you know, into, into twilight, I won't say I'm exactly there yet, but I'm getting close, knocking on the door. <laughs> uh, um, you're a good bit away from but, there. Uh, no, but we're all, uh, you know, we're all, you know, in a situation where, you know, things can just come in on us. And if we don't have that support and if we don't feel comfortable talking to people about our mental health, then, you know, we're on a slippery slope because it will just deteriorate. I want to come back to that because the, the, it's, that's the idea of the recovery is constant. Yes. And I want to come back. But I want to bring in Keelan Mickelson uh, this morning. You also have an involvement in, in, in AWARE. Can, can you tell what, what do you do for AWARE at the moment? So I uh, do the support line mm-hmm. and I've been with AWARE for about five years now um, doing the support line that whole time. The front line as well as the support because it, it, it is the front line, isn't it? The, in terms of the phone line, the first yes, port of call that yes. people have when they lift the phone to aware. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have re- have you relied on these phone calls yourself in the past? I have used support lines, yes, in the past, and I found them to be very helpful. Um, so that's what I hope to offer when and that's people why call through to us. You're able to do it, I, I presume, after all these five years. You know, it's an amazing experience, uh, I must say, to be on the line. Um, I definitely feel that it's always, you know, an honour and a privilege um, to listen to people's stories who call in. Um, And, you know, even though it's over the phone, there can be a great connection just kind of in the warmth, you know, kind of the the voice and that kind of talking with somebody and connecting with somebody else. And I think it's a fantastic service that we're able to offer at AWARE. And you're particularly able to know what it's like for that person to make the decision to to lift the phone and have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's an important point because, you know, there's the people who do pick up the phone and it takes a lot of courage to, you know, to take that step um, and reach out and talk to somebody. Um, And then there will be a lot of people out there that unfortunately, you know, we're we're not hearing from that haven't picked up the phone yet. Um, And I hope, you know, kind of occasions like this will encourage people that, you know, if you are struggling, you know, um, the the phone line is anonymous. um, You know, everything is confidential, like up to, you know, our confidentiality policy. Um, but it is a, a, a great starting point that, you know, maybe to to reach out and to get started on getting yourself um, some support, some help, whatever form that takes or whatever it is that it, you may need. It's a fantastic resource to have. And I want to come to your story because you, you, quite late in, what age are you, um, Adrian, when you, when you get diagnosed, by the way? I was 20... Well, I have to do my maths now. No, I was actually 30. Was Sorry, 30. And, and that yeah. quite similar experience, I think, for you, Keelan, isn't it? You get diagnosed. Yeah, my f- first diagnosis was kind of late, late 20s, you know. Um, but I, you know, my experience goes back to early childhood. Um, but there, and I, you know, there really wasn't kind of a good understanding or kind of, you know, um, either within myself or probably within like kind of, you know, my family um, on what was needed. I was kind of just considered, you know, to be a very moody child. Really? Um, 
you know, so by the time that I, you know, got my diet, my first diagnosis was actually bipolar. Um, I had had like kind of a break, really. Um, and then it was subs- it was later that was changed to a depression diagnosis. Um, and that one I I do feel like has a better fit um, in terms of like my experiences. Do you remember what age might have been when you were having these feelings as a child? So I remember, I think, being about like seven, bringing up that I wanted to kill myself, you know, um, and the reaction was very... A very stern, like, you know, don't be talking like that, you know, don't say such things. Um, and You told your parents? Yes. Um, and that's, that kind of sent a message of like, oh, you know, I, I shouldn't have these thoughts, you know. Um, and that was quite, you know, it was already frightening to have the thoughts. What does this mean? You know, obviously I was young, so I didn't have a good understanding. Um, I, you know... Looking back, I know it was related to some trauma in my like early childhood. Um, but I kind of then, yeah, it was from then I kind of kept that to myself, you know, or tried to. And it seeps out, you know, like you know, you know, your friend noticing these things do seep out. I mean, you know, maybe there's some great actors out there who kind of <laughs> maintain like a, you know, perfect demeanor. But I would say that usually, you know, the things kind of seep out in our behaviours and our experiences, what's going on internally. Um, for me, it was a lot of like negative um, thinking, you know, kind of ruminating, um, you know, kind of being fearful, you know, um, and being very confused. That's AWARE Support Line volunteer Keelan Mickelson talking to Oliver Callum this morning about her mental health journey. Also talking to Oliver was AWARE board member Adrian Yates. This week is AWARE's Mental Health Week and if you feel you need to talk to someone about your mental health, a good place to start is aware.ie. Studies suggest that some common diffusers that people use in their homes may have a detrimental effect on their pet's health. Claire Byrne spoke this morning to Claire Mead of the Cat Hospital in Cork about this. So animals, is it common for them to be affected by these types of things? It is really. We've known for a very long time that cats don't do very well with essential oils. We like to say that cats uh, and oils are like oil and water. Try and keep them apart. Um, One of the difficulties with cats in particular is that, of course, they groom themselves extensively as well as breathing. So if these oils land on their coats, they will immediately start trying to lick them off. And the same thing will happen with a dog. Uh, In those situations where they get a large dose of essential oils, it really is an emergency and you should seek veterinary attention uh, very quickly. The difference with those diffusers, of course, is that they tend to develop slower difficulties because they're just walking around in the environment with these essential oils in the air. And even though they smell really nice for us, um, unfortunately, the cat's and dogs can inhale these oils and they're not really designed for us to inhale. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if the animal has um, an allergic type of reaction, if they're sensitive to these things, which many, many of our pets are. So what might you notice then if your pet has a problem with these things? 
Well, the main issues that we get would be breathing difficulties uh, and sometimes it can be quite difficult for pet owners to even notice that their cats have breathing difficulties. Um, cats tend to hide their symptoms. I think almost every time you have a vet on the radio or television, they say that cats tend to hide their symptoms. So the cat might just be a little bit less active. Um, we would say across the board, if you have pets, it is best to avoid these essential oil diffusers. And that would include the reed diffusers, which of course the cat can knock over, or the dog can knock over and get a very large volume of oil on them. Uh, but for the diffusers themselves, uh, generally they start breathing funny if the cat has difficulties with asthma anyway they can develop a full asthma attack the dogs tend to vomit um, and unfortunately if they take in enough of these essential oils it can cause problems with their livers they're really not designed to be inhaled by cats in particular and ingested by dogs it's very yeah, very dangerous it's good for us to know this Claire because I think the type of homes that would tend to use these things are the homes where there are pets living inside because people are trying to deal with the, the smell that the pet can bring with them. Absolutely. And I'm showing my age now to say there's nothing wrong with fresh air. So if there's any possibility of opening windows in a safe way, if you have indoor cats, it really is much better than trying to mask this, the odours that come from animals. And the same would apply for strongly scented uh, fabric conditioners and other shampoos that we might use on upholstery. Uh, so really, if you have pets, as best as you can, you would use the sensitive um, products. They would be the best and use fresh air to keep the house fresh. I can imagine there would be people who see that their pet has a health problem, breathing or skin allergy, and they haven't a clue what it is. And they're completely perplexed by, by this problem until they maybe take them out of the environment where they have those scented oils on the go. Absolutely. And remember, you can always phone your vet because the vets, we are well aware of this because obviously we deal with the fallout of these problems. But for the general public where you wouldn't really be aware there might be a problem at all. And of course, there may be no warnings or the warnings might be very much hidden in the small print. But when you look at the list of essential oils that can be problematic for animals, really there are far more of them that are problematic for animals than that are safe for animals. Mm -hmm. So best to avoid. So um, skin allergies then, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I know you mentioned the breathing issues and you mentioned at the very serious end of the scale then liver problems. But if you notice your pet scratching a little bit more than they might otherwise, again, it's important to look at what's in the atmosphere of the room they're living in. Absolutely, because remember, they're absolutely covered in hair. Um, so they have very sensitive skins, in particular, some of the breeds of dogs. They would come from a breed that we would describe as atopic, which would be a breed that would tend to have allergies, let's say, in people. It might be eczema and hay fever and asthma. So we get those same diseases, in particularly families of dogs uh, or breeds of dogs, as we call them, where it seems to come through from one generation to the other and some breeds do suffer very, very badly with these allergies and it's very well known that some of them have to stay on medication all their lives. So when you attend the vet, the vet will do their absolute utmost to identify anything that could be triggering these skin problems 
and we would frequently reference the fabric conditioners and the smelly candles and the shampoos and those kind of things to encourage the owner to really simplify everything that's coming in contact with the dog's skin Mm -hmm. uh, or that they could be ingesting because unfortunately they can sometimes ingest something that causes a skin problem if they have this condition called atopy. So is it enough then just to remove the scented oil from the environment or are you saying that we could do damage which might require something like steroid treatment in the longer term? It would depend on how the dog's skin is reacting. But certainly if you have a dog with allergies, having these very strongly scented molecules drifting all over your home is is not a good idea. And uh, often, as it is with people, when you're trying to identify allergies, we have tests for some of them. But of course, there are thousands of things that can trigger allergies that we have no tests for. And we're well aware that the strongly scented uh, items can trigger these breathing allergies and skin allergies. Mm-hmm. And then, as I say, if they're ingested, it really can be a medical emergency and that you'd have to attend the vet quickly in order to make sure the cat or dog doesn't develop liver failure or tummy problems as a result. But as you were touching on there, some, just like humans, I mean, some animals can just experience a lot of allergies and, and have problems regardless of how careful you are in the home. And that's hugely frustrating for owners. I know some owners who couldn't be more dedicated to their animal's health and yet they're stopped on the road and told you should go to a vet with that dog (laughs) or that cat because, you know, unfortunately, everything is expressed on the skin. You can't hide it when there's a skin problem. And some of these breeds, unfortunately, their genetics just means that they're susceptible. And just like some people with skin problems, regardless of the specialist they attend, they still struggle with those skin problems. But the good news is we have some really fantastic skin specialists in the country now. So we can attend someone with even more training than the average vet for some of these complex cases. Yikes. That's Claire Mead of the Cat Hospital in Cork talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the effects of diffusers on pets. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.